Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada. Have you ever needed a push to start something new? Or maybe just to get over a hump or a hurdle? Yeah, look, we're human. We've all been there. That's why today I love this conversation with Susanna Fur, the author of The Upside of Uncertainty. As she shows us that there's this power that can be found in uncertainty and in change. You've got to listen in because she tells us the tools and she tells us how to harness the feeling and use it in your everyday life. I love this conversation specifically because a lot of us are just coming out of this whole COVID feeling of real uncertainty. You can apply this to your life and to your business. Listen in. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts, a success podcast. And today I have a special guest for you. I've actually been looking forward to talking to her for now a few months. It took us a while to get together, but we did it. Susanna Fur, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Tristan. I'm excited for this conversation. Me too. And you're out of Normandy today. Tell me about that. That's kind of cool. Yeah. So um, my husband and I moved to France seven years ago, and we actually started in a little village south of Paris where his campus is. He's at a business school that's called INSEAD. And uh, they all assured us it'll be a great place for you and your family. We had four kids at the time that were 10, 12, 14, and 17. We have an international school. It's going to be a perfect fit. And it ended up being French school with a little tacked-on Anglophone section. And it was brutal. They, you know, there could not be two different, more different, more extreme school uh, methods than kind of a U.S. education where questioning and thinking outside the box is really encouraged versus French like stay in the box thing. So we moved to Paris after a year and a half. That's where we actually live um, full time. And Normandy oh. is a happy little thatch cottage getaway that we figured out. Everybody in France has country houses that they go to. And so it's kind of a cool thing. So yes, my little background is one of the, actually people have told us it's kind of a 90s version of what was cool, but they did used to you know cover the walls for insulation with a little batting and then this fabric that is Sometimes a little bit of a headache, but it's a cool place to be. We love I'm France. I'm digging the fabric. I'm digging it. Look, if, if you're just listening in and not watching, she's got an amazing fabric in her background. So I, I'm digging it. It's like a yellow and then a light green. It's, it's nice. It's nice, Susanna. I like it. Now let's talk about uncertainty because I think it, it was thrown into all of our faces around the world with, with the pandemic and and a lot of people, most people, I would say, don't handle uncertainty well at all. Yeah. And I think they start making up things in their head and then they function that way. Yeah. That's that's what I've seen in talking to thousands of different people and even business owners. What made you go deeper into the topic of uncertainty? I love that question, and I'm thinking of like 10 different ways it could go, but I'll start by saying actually Nathan, who is my co-author and my husband, and uh, he, he started this question like 20 years ago. So he was doing his PhD at Stanford, and he was super interested in, you know, his focus is technology strategy, and he was we were living in the Bay Area because he was at Stanford, and he was like, wow, innovators have to take on uncertainty to do anything new, but how do they do it? So everybody, we love to celebrate like these big risks and breakthroughs and innovations, but nothing new comes from doing a certain tried and true path. And so personally, he was very motivated because he always says, I feel like I'm not good at it. Um, That said, I love uncertainty and together we kind of form a cool duo for navigating it because he really does a lot of this kind of background research. He's very methodical. He wants to make sure he's doing the right thing. And I have this sense that kind of from a different angle that it always is going to work out even if there's failure, even if there are pitfalls. So basically when the pandemic happened, for us that was a moment of shoot, we wish this book that we've already been working on was ready because it's something that 
all of a sudden his publisher, Harvard, who he'd worked with before, was saying, oh my gosh, now we understand why you're talking about uncertainty. He, they were always saying, well, how is this different than ambiguity? How is this different than risk? Um, in that moment where it hit everybody, in such, like you said, a crucial way that really threatened a lot of people's lives, literally, but also our financial lives, our social lives, our um, mental health lives. It was Our well-being was all just kind of being rattled, our cages. And so at that moment, we really got the momentum and we decided to focus and write it together. But we decided to write this book to the individual inside of the manager or inside the CEO because his books have tended to be up to this point very much um, – geared to a business audience. And so the the okay. research and all of that still is very much, um, most of the examples are coming out of kind of those entrepreneurs or CEOs or leaders or managers. That said, we did decide with the pandemic to open the scope and start talking to other people. So we've got a paramedic filmmaker and we've got artists and we've got contrarians mm. and other people because we realized uncertainty is something that happens to us and it it attacks our very fundamental human level of like, am I okay? Am I going to be okay? And so we wrote the book to the individual inside those people that wear those hats. So that's kind of something I feel like I brought to the book was that he was really wanting to do this kind of more like managerial approach. And I said, you know what? Uncertainty needs to be um, dealt with first as an individual. So before you can lead a team, you kind of need to know how to navigate it yourself. And so um, I hope that answered oh. the question. But yeah, uncertain uncertainty for us was something that we've actually personally experienced a lot, moving country, yeah. but other things too. And I think anyone who's been a parent and who's been in a long-term marriage, like there's a lot of stuff where things keep changing on you and shifting. And it requires this ability to navigate like things that change on you and maybe make you want to do things like, okay, this is done or I need to move on. And sometimes we need to move on from things and sometimes we need to figure out how to stick with it and, and pivot or see the bigger picture or reframe what's happening. So, Yeah, that's a really good framework there. So I understand it better. And I'm glad that you jumped into it because I think it needs to be this topic needs to be talked about by everyone. Yes. Because because I feel like the pandemic really it was almost like everyone was at war. Yeah. And the time when we really see uncertainty is with war. I mean, look at what's happening with Ukraine, the people living there, mm -hmm. right? A lot of uncertainty. So much. But we got it we got a taste of that through the pandemic. And I noticed that I really noticed that Dealing with uncertain, not being able to deal with uncertainty really creates a, a sense of deep anxiety that eats at you mm -hmm. and then other problems arise from it. And so I loved that you tackled that in The Upside of Uncertainty. That's the title, mm -hmm. right? So I love how you took it around and you're like, hey, guys, hey, there's an upside to this. Mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. was that was that idea of the upside part yours or or was that Nathan's? You know, it was both of ours, actually. So before we came up with that title, we did a little beta workshop on Zoom. So full pandemic mode. This was when there were no vaccines. They were being formed, but no one had them yet. And so we did these little workshops and we called it up school because what we were calling and the up at that point stood for uncertainty and possibility. And basically, our idea is that uncertainty is just one side of the coin and it's the mm -hmm. possibility is just beyond when whenever there's uncertainty, there's always possibility attached. So we like to think about it's kind of it has two meanings. So up going up, we always prefer to go up than down. Um, if we got really Buddhist, we could talk about how sometimes you have to go down to go up. But and that's true. But the upside really has this kind of hidden little nugget of uncertainty, possibility, one coin, have to do one to get to the other. No possibility mm. ever comes without first having some some measure of uncertainty um, i love that yeah now, now every time i think of up i'm gonna think of that acronym yeah so that is so good yeah it's kind of fun That's how it worked out because we have our up school 
idea that actually takes in some other um, projects that we've worked on, but the up school works really well for uncertainty possibility for sure. That's so cool. And I know you, you did hundreds of interviews and, and that, that to me was the exciting part because you got to see so many different approaches to this. And then you created the four tools mm -hmm. of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't want to go through them. I want you to go through them with us so that you can explain this process uh, of us being able to better deal with this. Okay, cool. So, yeah, we actually like to think of it as not four tools, but four categories of tools. And we oh. use this framework of a first aid cross because that's such an international symbol for, like, help, you know, when you see that red cross. And so yeah. the four categories of tools, each one has several more tools. So they're kind of meant to be read mm -hmm. and then applied, like the ones that resonate for you. Because some people might say, oh, I don't need to do that. And that's great. They're, they're definitely, they kind of even meld into each other sometimes. But the, the Red Cross has reframe at the top. And reframe is really kind of like the North Star or the compass. Because it's the first thing you've got to do. And it's that moment when you can believe that there could be possibility in whatever uncertainty you're facing. So, like you said, the pandemic threw all of us and took a collective tailspin of feeling like, I can't do this or I don't want to do this. And we can just go into a very sad cognitive and behavioral trap where we do negative rumination, where we do threat rigidity, you know, like we force outcomes mm. just because we want to end the uncertainty so bad. So the reframing mm -hmm. tool set really has some cool things to help you reframe it, but also for you to have to step back and get a bigger picture of what's possible for you. So the first framing thing is, OK, first, you got to see uncertainty as possibility. But then there's other tools like adjacent possible or infinite game where we're trying to help you reframe your options and see more possibilities yeah. than you're seeing. Um, then there's the prime tool. So it's kind of that left arm. If you're looking at a cross, the left part is about preparing. And we use the word priming because when you think about um, priming a room, like with paint or priming a pump, it's kind of this really important step so that you you really are happy with the outcome. And so preparing is done when you really kind of take some time to have some more self-knowledge. So we encourage getting comfortable with your own risk profile. And we use a, mm. a technique that one of Nathan's mentors at Stanford, Dr. Tina Selig, shared with him, which is this idea of a riskometer. So you graph your own aversions and affinities to risk on a chart. And it's kind of cool because the minute you see like, oh, my gosh, actually, there are different kinds of risk. And Nathan tells a great story. Um, about when he was doing his PhD, we had four little kids. I was starting a clothing line and we lived in the student housing. So people thought we were bonkers and we kind of were, but we were really happy to be there and we were like making it work. But one day at lunch with Tina, Nathan was saying, gosh, I wish I was brave enough to be an entrepreneur. And, you know, maybe I would even leave my academic thing because he was like, here in Silicon Valley, the entrepreneurs are the heroes, you know, and I kind of want to get in on that yeah. vibe. And she was like, wait, 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 Nathan. She's like, first off, there's tons of kinds of risks. Oh, he was saying, because the upshot was, because I, I am not good at financial risk. I don't like risks. And she said, well, mm -hmm. I see you as someone who takes a lot of risks. You know, you take social risk, you take intellectual risk. You're an amazing, you know, student and individual. But like financial risk, I'm kind of glad you don't take tons of financial risk. And he was all of a sudden enlightened to this idea that there's tons of kinds of risks. So sometimes our riskometer that we include in the book, and it's, it is her riskometer, but she encourages you to like take out the little um, ranking. Like we say, you know, you could have a financial, physical, emotional, social, psychological, but in, you could do it with your team or in a company. You could say like, um, you know, corporate people are talking about different risks like customer risk or, yeah. oh, I'm drawing a blank. But anyway, Make a riskometer, chart yourself, and then embrace where you're where you're like, wait a second, I actually do take those kind of risks. It's kind of like a really good tool to to make yourself feel a little bit more ready for whatever you're facing. And for the ones where you aren't feeling like you're good at that, you know, maybe you're ranking yourself as very low on wanting to take those. Find ways to start in um, increasing your ability to maybe just even get comfortable with the idea of it. Because a lot of times the risks we aren't willing to take will hold us back. And an example of that with Nathan and the financial risk thing is 
um, when we were newlyweds and we were living in Boston, we were we were affording rent that was way outside of the city. And so, and I was at home with little baby and I felt like I'm not, I'm living in Boston. I'm never seeing it. And we figured out a way that we could basically take this little bit of money set aside and buy an apartment in the city. And his commute would be way better, but it terrified us because the price seemed really high. Anyway, his financial risk almost would have held us back, but we were like, okay, what do you think? What should we do? Let's sleep on it. And when he woke up, he was like, I was I was feeling smug, almost like I'm being wiser and I don't want to put us at risk. But really, it was one of the best decisions we made. And so to, to, as a caveat, obviously, there are risks you shouldn't take. But sometimes we hold ourselves back because it's an, a risk that we have an aversion for. And if we can just mm-hmm. push ourselves a little, we can increase our risk ability in that area. But I'm going too much into risk because really our book hardly deals with risk at all. We really see risk as something that is that there are probabilities for, like rolling dice or so in in investments, Uh you know, you can kind of know like where it could land. Uncertainty is totally crazier. As we've all seen, things can change on a dime or overnight. And so the reason that's a priming tool, though, is it still helps you to know like what's going to kind of get in my way as I go into this uncertainty journey. Moving from the prime arm to the Mm. right side. Should I keep going through the tools or do you want to stop and talk about riskometers for a minute? I have, a, I have a question okay. on the priming because yeah. it, it seems like it's it's almost like you're you're making sure that you're analyzing where you're at first. It's like, yes. okay, where, where, where am I? And you're also taking a look at maybe even seeing what what the possibilities are of failure, success and saying, hey, what, what does this really look like so I can move forward? And I, and I love that. And going back just to reframing, because a lot of people get stuck there, and I, I witness it in this whole process, the the reframing process, how, how would you suggest people start in a good place so that they don't look at it just one-sided? How do we get to looking at this a little bit more objectively so we can see the possibilities? Because that's what you're really talking about. There are opportunities in uncertainty, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. How do we change our mindset to be able to look at those? Yeah. So basically, the first tool under the reframe category is just for people to understand what framing is. And it was a concept Uh, in psychology with um, Tversky and Kahneman. And they actually did a study where they basically were able to demonstrate that humans are... um, They are loss averse and and gain seeking. So anything that feels like a loss, we are wired to run from and avoid. And uncertainty always kind of shows up in this loss, you know, framework. It feels like, oh, no, I could lose everything or I could lose this relationship or I could lose my house. I could lose my job. I could lose what, you know, my health. And so we have to first understand that it's a human thing it's a, we've evolved to have these re- responses of anxiety and this just overwhelming kind of you know shutting down and so that needs to just first be understood and then we have to have patience with ourselves and there's there's tools for that in fact that bottom part so if you think of reframe on the top of the first aid cross sustain is at the bottom and they're very similar because sustained tools are for when we get knocked off the horse, when something goes wrong, when our uncertainty journey all of a sudden takes a horrible turn and we're feeling like, oh no, it was all going to work and now it's not. And it's a similar framework because in that moment, that loss thing shows up again and all of those wiring patterns in our brains fire. You know, it's really that Mm. amygdala reptilian brain. And so it's a real thing. That's why we we can't we have to practice this and we and we can get better it's like a muscle um the research has shown we can learn these tools um i think that when we know humans are wired in this way then we can just kind mm-hmm. of step back and go okay i'm human i'm yeah, i'm doing this it. but it's normal it's normal and then you can start thinking about okay cool what are the other possibilities but if you don't kind of calm yourself down first um Another really important part of reframing is the tool that we actually named a weird word. It's aplomb. And aplomb, A-P-L-O-M-B, really, it actually comes from a French base because in 
France, um, iron or lead is plomb. Like plombier, a plumber, is named oh, after this. Yeah, yeah. And it's like a plumb line. And, you know, they use that to find, like, the true gravity, like, the solid, like, this is what is, um, yeah, it's like the solid, straight, true line. Yeah. And um, self-doubt comes into play so much in uncertainty because it, like, again, it mm-hmm. triggers this thing of like, oh, no, I don't have the skills. I'm not good enough. I'm not capable. Someone's going to beat me. Someone's going to get there first. And we actually included some stories in our book of, like, people that no one would ever assume or think had had self-doubt because often we think, oh, my gosh, we look at people and see their achievements and are like, oh, my gosh, but they're cut out of some different cloth. They're amazing. Um, John Steinbeck, writing The Grapes of Wrath, he kept a journal. And he actually made it only available to his sons, I think, until he was dead. But it is like the saddest daily journal of just like he trashes himself like, I'm terrible. This book is important, but I'm doing a horrible job. I'm not an author. People think I'm going to write something great. It's horrible. And as he gets to the end of this book that ultimately would win... I, he won a Nobel Prize, but I was thinking, did, was it a Pulitzer Prize? Anyway, I, I need to check that. Um, he felt horrible about how he was doing. And the work that he was doing wasn't living up to what this... In, uh, he knew it was an important book. He knew he needed to write this book. But he felt scared about his ability. And so we call the tool a plum because... Um, there is a way to bypass this self-doubt. And it's tricky. It's kind of a weird moment, but it's basically demonstrated by Richard Feynman, another Nobel Prize winner. He was a physicist who, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but look it up because he basically Mm -hmm. was asked, after the war, he worked at the Alamo Project. So, you know, uh, with all those scientists figuring out the atom bomb, which ultimately was kind of a devastating experience. His wife died of tuberculosis during that time. The love of his life, mm. he leaves that experience just completely burnt out and overwhelmed and feeling no interest in his career. He goes back to, um, I always get these details wrong. Nathan's like the ultimate storyteller. So if he were here, he'd be like, it was <laughs> Yale or Princeton. Basically, he had a great post, but he wasn't feeling motivated or curious about anything. And he was reading the Thousand and One Arabian Nights and just feeling like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be found out to be a total fraud and like my life's over. And then he got Mm. a job offer to go to and this is which Prince. He was at Princeton and went to Yale or Yale to Princeton. But he basically it was such an absurd offer because it was where Einstein was. And he thought, Oh. oh, my gosh, now this is really the kicker. Like, I am so below these people. But you know what? How absurd for them to offer me this. I'm just going to go and I'm just going to have fun. I'm going to go back to the questions that were curious to me in the beginning. And he starts doing um, things that were like, hmm, curious to him. And once he's some kid throws a plate up in the dining hall and the emblem at the bottom of the plate wobbled at a different ratio to the external rim of the plate. And he was like, I'm going to calculate that. And he goes and does it. And his mentor, who's another Nobel Prize winner, he brings in the data. And he's like, cool, but what? Who cares? And he's like, I care. And it's good enough for me. And basically, the tool of aplomb is kind of going rogue on your self-doubt, kind of looking at it and trusting. Like, if you're in a role in your company, or even if you you are the one sole person trying to push an idea forward, you're there for a reason. People have believed in you before. Get out of your own way and start thinking like, okay, what can I do today to push mm. this forward? I'm going to feel bad. These other people that have done amazing things have felt bad doing it. Maybe yeah. I'm going to, maybe I'm on the right track and kind of quieting that fear. And so, again, we're all going to feel to different levels the uncertainty that we face, but everybody feels it and it, and it makes everybody feel kind of crazy. There's no one, you know, we met, we talked with so many innovators and and really big wigs. And some of those interviews I wasn't around for because I wasn't working on the project yet. But they would say things like to Nathan, like, I eat uncertainty for breakfast. I love it. And then he'd <sighs> get behind funny. the scenes and he'd find out, oh, these people are bringing the exact same granola every day. And they get the same seat on the plane. And they stay in the same hotel. And if they can, the same room of the same hotel. And it's a tool we call uncertainty balancers. Because to deal in the kind of uncertainty they face... They figure out other ways to kind of hedge up and shore up the things that they that help them feel cozy and safe. And, you know, 
when we talk about um, Steve Jobs and his black turtlenecks, that's one of the ways you can kind of create some balance. You know, you just take the equation of like, what am I going to wear today and just take it off the table. And a lot of companies will do those things like they have um, cafeterias or, or dry cleaning. So sometimes it's about a, an automization of something that's just taking time. So, But often it's also a ritual. Like people do these things and they help us feel safe. So those are other priming mm. tools. You know, use uncertainty balancers. It can be people. It could be a weekly session with a life coach. It could be an exercise class where you get to see people. It could be a music thing you do every week. It could be anything. But we do need to um, balance the uncertainty. It's, we are not fans of, like, scale up and do every uncertain thing at the same time. No way. You know, you yeah. kind of got to know what on your temperature. Like, if you're at a top thing, start taking some uncertainty off if you can. You know, say no to some things. Put some things on a back burner. It's real, this fear that we have. We can't be like, we're not robots, luckily. I love this. Uncertainty balancers, that's, that's actually pretty brilliant, the idea that all of the other things that we do ritualistically keep us balanced so that we can handle the uncertainty where we need to handle it. That's so brilliant. I love that. You know, it's hilarious because just last night, my my daughter who just graduated high school, and by the way, so my kids were in that French school and had to leave to, we found an American version. It's an international school, but it's an American high school basically in Paris. And she told me last mm -hmm. night, she's like, mom, I used to eat one of these Milka bars almost every day, but it was my uncertainty balancer during that hard school. And I'm like, what? The folk? And it was like the big one. It was like a big tablet of chocolate, you know? And she's like, oh yeah. I, it was like the cozy thing I could do. I had my little show at night and I would, so after funny. doing my homework. So, you know, sometimes it's chocolate, but like those things, she, she was like, mom, I'm not kidding. Like I was laughing. She's like, no, it was, it was an uncertainty balancer for sure. That's interesting. I mean, yeah. hold on, on, the, on a side note here, if we're talking about diet in general, that means we can actually get into a habit of having these bad eating habits as well. Because Absolutely. at work, we may be dealing with uncertainty, but at home, we're like, you know, I love Twinkies and yeah. the chocolate and going. Yeah, so interesting. I, I never looked at it this, this way. So thank you. Well, yeah. So in that case, That's, that wasn't the most healthy balancer, but she was kind of saying, Mom, I need, I ha like, I needed something to get me through. And that's what it was. Yeah. But you're right. I get you, but that makes sense. Yeah. We have to be careful. What, so are, what I, are we using as balancers, right? Oh, very interesting. Very interesting. I always thought, you know, the decision fatigue with, with uh, Steve Jobs just picking the same shirt and pants. And I, I have a few CEO billionaire friends that just they're the same thing. They wear just the same shirt, same jeans, right? But now I'm looking at it differently. Now I'm rethinking it, yeah. thanks, thanks to uh, this phrase. So thank you. Uh, now, going back to reframe, prime, then you have do and sustain. We, mm -hmm. we talked about sustain a little bit, but let's go into do. What does that yeah. look like on these categories? Yes. So do is um, that other side of the horizontal cross, and it's... Uh, really important because obviously in uncertainty to kind of have a voice in it, you kind of got to take action. One of the um, really brilliant innovators that we talked to worked at an, uh, one of the largest semiconductor firms. It's called ASML. His name is Martin Vanderbrink. But he was talking about sometimes people think that they can just not take action and that that works. But when we don't take action, other things are still going to go forward. So it's changing without our vote in it. And so, so much better to be actively participating. There is no like pause button for the world. It's going to move on without us and impact us a great yeah. deal. So how do we take action under uncertainty? There's tons of cool tools. And I mean, I think what's fun about that uh that set of tools is we kind of go at it really practically with research from Nathan's actually dissertation about learning in uncertainty. How do you, like we call it learning through fog, how do you make steps when it's like a cloudy, uh, you know, you're on a hill in fog and cloud. What do you do? And he talked about how startup accelerators do things like fast learning. So they'll put um, founders with tons of other founders and they get them talking to as many people as possible and they make them talk to people from all over different um, categories of, of work. So it's very much about learning fast, pivots and all that. So we do talk about that kind of regular startup kind of lingo stuff about um, small yeah. steps and incrementalism and all that. But we also 
again, like our other tools, we want people to be thinking about the bigger picture. And we talk about how do you unlock and activate uncertainty instead of trying to force it and manage it? And that was a really aha moment for Nathan because mm. he was, when he was starting this question and asking a lot of people, he was saying, you know what, we need a new management science for uncertainty. So he was talking about managing uncertainty. And people would kind of be like, I love the topic, but I don't like the word manage because you kind of can't manage it. It's To manage something, you kind of need to know what are the inputs, what are the variables, what, is the, what are the timelines, what are the needs, you know, what are the deadlines. No, this is just like chaos, right? So uncertainty mm -hmm. can't be managed. And we found this really cool story about this landscape architect that was from Brazil named um, Roberto Burley Marx. And he was in Berlin. This is in the mid-century, like 1950s. And so he's in this Bauhaus Berlin area. But there happened to be at a horticultural society this exhibit of flora from his native Brazil. And he went in there and he mm -hmm. saw these gorgeous plants, but they were in like these cement containers. And it was so weird to him. And he was like, he had this moment of like, why are we forcing things that are so incredible into these confined little spaces and try to control them? He's like, what mm -hmm. if we need to activate and unlock? What would that look like? And he actually designed like the... Um, the Copacabana Boardwalk in Rio. So it's this beautiful thing. If you look at an aerial view, it's just undulating, crazy, cool walkways That's and plants cool. just erupting. And the idea really that from there on, we were like, okay, so when we do something under uncertainty, let's do it less about like ugh, making our mark on something or forcing the idea we have, but more being like an observer, like, okay, what's happening in real time and activating and unlocking what is the uncertainty bringing to us? So it's a very abstract thing, Ooh. but we give a lot more examples. Like, for instance, Maria Montessori. She's credited with creating this amazing, beautiful um, method of education for children. But really what she did mm -hmm. is she just believed, like, she she was working with kids that had been put in asylums that were seen as, like, completely useless. Their families had put them away. They, and a lot of times they were had disabilities or they were impaired in some way. They were kind of being fed mm -hmm. me medications and left in wheelchairs and kind of just kept alive. And she actually started there. And she was like, what if these kids had crayons and toys and, and games? And she got these kids to pass tests. And then people were like, what? And then she was given the next realm of like, well, you can work with kids that are living in poverty. And again, in every instance, what she was doing was just letting kids have access to things that sparked their innate curiosities. And so, again, activating and unlocking is available to all of us. It gets us started way quicker. We don't have to have all these yeah. resources. We can just be like, okay, what's happening here? And it's it's a creative thing. So we kind of got to trust that we could have some good ideas and be creative. But the do section is really a fun, fun tool kit. I love that. It, it really goes into, I think, the do part really helps us as humans deal with uncertainty better by being exposed to it more and mm -hmm. just seeing how we react and getting used to that. Mm -hmm. Because I think dealing with uncertainty, I mean, you, you, you know this better, so help me here, but dealing with uncertainty seems to come down to us on a human level, being able to adapt quickly to just not knowing what's going to happen next and being okay with it. Mm -hmm. No, that's totally right. How, how um, is it that, we take better action to dealing with uncertainty, though. Is it just taking action? No. Thank you so much for that question, because that was the last little tidbit that I needed to add, which is this idea that if we take action based on our values rather than goals that lie outside of us, we will not fail. And that's a pretty pr tall promise. But here's the cool story that goes with that. One of the entrepreneurs we talked with, um, David Heinemeyer Hansen, he's a Danish guy that's known for Ruby on Rails and Basecamp and tons of cool things. He actually just started a, well, a few years ago, an, a mail, an email service called Hey.com that actually Apple tried to kind of squash because anyway, they wanted to take so much of his profit and he ended up turning it on into the best marketing campaign because he just kind of sent a thing out like, hey, bullies are happening, you know, and everyone was like, no, that's so lame. So anyway, his thing is, in the startup world, we so often create these goals that are completely out of our control, like we're going to make 10 billion or we're going to have this many customers and all these things that are really, at the end of the day, so far outside our control. 
But this is kind of what we've been led to believe is that we have to create these huge outlier goals or create those huge and, and achieve them to be worthwhile as humans, to be successful. It's like, oh, what? how many followers do you have, you know? And it's really sad because it never really or it rarely equates to like true, authentic uh results or meaning. And so basically mm. what he told us mm. is when I figured out, and he kind of takes this from stoicism and we, we had a mm. lot of people talk about the stoics and how it kind of helps them in uncertainty. But in this case, figuring out what am I in control of actually? And really, we only can really take into account the things we literally in inherently personally um, can, can be in charge of. So that kind of means like what we care about, what our values are. So his example was, if I can write really good software, be really awesome to my employees, and be really ethical in the marketplace, I'm a success. And it doesn't matter if anyone likes my thing at the end of the day because I know I'm going to learn. And so with this hey.com thing, when it was like about to be like hanging in the balance, like they'd spent like a couple million on it, they were working on it for two years, he really came back to this equation of like, did we do these two things? Yeah, we did. Okay, even if it has to just be done at this point, we learned so much. We'll take that learning into our next thing. And you know what? We we were successful with our values. And I think, you know, people could be like, oh, cute, but like, it's real. You know, like when at the end of the day, if you haven't traded in something that matters to you to get there, there's a lot of peace in that. I mean, think how many people are feeling a lot of regret for things they've done because they felt like they had to do that to get to the outcome. And with values aligned work, we won't ever have that issue. Interesting. I really like that a lot. I think it. you brought up stoicism. I think that that goes hand in hand because I'm thinking, I'm thinking Marcus Aurelius mm -hmm. when... He's going and saying, hey, you see the problem? It's You have to actually go through the problem to get to the other side. Mm -hmm. And you have to be okay not knowing what the heck's going to happen. But you can't lose what's most important to you mm -hmm. in that process. And that's your values. That was awesome. Yeah, he, he's the a do fun person. through values? Yeah, do stuff. So, yeah, it's not just taking any action. Really take action based on your values and you won't fail. So good. So good. I love that. All right, let's talk about sustain. Where do we start there? So sustain is so critical because like we talked about with that wiring of our brains, the moment things are really showing up to be going, you know, it appears something's going wrong. We're going to have all that firing and wiring of like alert, alert, abort mission, you know, step back, you're a failure. All those negative beliefs. We basically talk about three types of ways to sustain ourselves because we knew if we had like this list of 12 things people would be like crap what do I do right now though I'm so confused so there's three things there's emotional hygiene mm -hmm. there's reality check and then there's magic so really quickly emotional hygiene is when you perform like physical hygiene the cleaning of the wound the putting on the band-aid so in whatever case that may look like First, just figuring out, like, what am I even feeling? Where have I felt this before? Do I need help with this? Do I need to talk to someone about this? Um, mm -hmm. what, are my, what are my beliefs right now? Because sometimes, and we, we talk about learned optimism from Martin Seligman and his, his studies on learned helplessness and learned optimism, mm. because really it turns out we can get better at being more optimistic. And it's just, they're just um, explanatory styles. So when we say, oh, you're such a pessimist, Pessimists are people who, when something goes wrong, they see it as permanent and kind of like this means, I can't remember the words he uses, it's perfect, but it's like, because this happened, it means I'm a bad person, it's always going to be this way, and it's hopeless. And optimists instead see something as like a one-time thing, and they see it as temporary, and they don't see it as like, I'm wrong, something's wrong with me. They see it more as external, like, oh yeah, that was bad timing, and they're able to just move on quickly. So emotional hygiene takes into all those accounts and it helps people figure out how do I start on this journey towards more optimism. Disputing negative beliefs is another thing he teaches. So we kind of give people a teeny mini overview of, of learned optimism because we do need to perform oh, emotional yeah. hygiene on ourselves. Um, reality check is a series of tools that really helps you look truthfully at your situation because sometimes when stuff starts to go wrong, we start like 
exaggerating like, oh my gosh, and we get really freaked out about our worst case scenarios. But ultimately, um, worst case scenario can be a tool that psychologists even use to help people kind of navigate oh no, this what if kind of stuff. And we actually used this during the pandemic. Nathan was really freaking out. Um, you know, my work as an entrepreneur, it's kind of, I, I'm not bringing in a lot of money. And so he's kind of a single income situation. And we have kids in college and in this private high school. It gets really expensive. And in one week, all of his main income went away in the pandemic. And we were writing this book. And it's kind of a hilarious moment because he was just feeling so crazy and like, you know, we're, are we going to go bankrupt? Am I going to be able to pay for this stuff? Do we need to be thinking of other stuff? And he had all these worst case yeah. scenarios that were really freaking him out. And I said to him, I said, okay, well, um, if you can't use the tools we are writing up about, like in real time right now, you don't get to write this book. <laughs> and he, he actually always will tell that story. If he were here, he would tell it himself. But it was this moment of, he was just like, oh my gosh, like you're right. Like, cause again, like I said, when oh, these things happen, so we can't, think about it. And so he actually tells the story of going downstairs, grinding coffee beans, feeling the sunlight come through the window. And it was a moment of worst case scenario and I lose everything. I'll have coffee and the sun and hopefully my family, these relationships that I love. And it was like he he ended up going through worst case scenarios with his life coach later. And he started going, you know, if my university folded because the business school was acting like this is the worst since the recession, you know, like, I mean, since the depression, yeah, yeah. people were freaking out. He's like, you know, what if mm -hmm. we just moved to kind of a coastal French little town and like I just was writing and I did some tra trainings and we had way less expenses. And the, the, uh, the worst case scenario all of a sudden kind of started sounding fun. So Reality Check is a set of tools to help you look more realistically at what's going on. And it also it gives you some frustration management frames to see, wait, what good has come out of this failure? Because there's so much that we learn and we want to say like, no, we only learned from all these really cool things that worked, but we totally learn more from the things that didn't work. It's just true. You know, with that's awesome. By the way, I took lots of notes on that part. Reality check though. You need, I think you need someone like you though. <laughs> like it's in some cases without somebody in your life that allows for that reality check. Yeah. It may not even happen until way later. Yeah, you could you can kind of spiral into like a whirling dervish of 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 doomsday. And I will say our book is cool because there's personal reflection exercises after each little mini tool. So we walk people Ooh. through how to like how would you do this worst case scenario? And we warn people if worst case scenario for you right now is too triggering, don't do it. Like there are some like if if a worst case scenario is someone's gonna die. And those are real true. Like with any illness, that's super hard. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like we're being flippant like, oh, big deal. You'll go on. No, no, no. This is really hard. So we have reflections that hopefully we've taken in caveats for all the mm -hmm. situations where it might be hard to do. But we do need helpers. But, you know, reading the book, I think people will feel like, oh, I can apply this right now because there's so many different yeah. ways to do a reality check. But you know what? We both have life coaches. I totally believe in getting an outside opinion for things because we get yes. trapped in our own thinking for sure. Agreed. All right. What's the magic? Because when you said magic, I'm thinking. Oh, no. Silly, you know, right? Magic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking in a good way because yeah. I love fantasy and magic. So tell yeah. me. Yeah. So we named it magic even though we're like, oh, do we risk this? But we did because it's referring to those leaps of insight those moments of serendipity that you can't take full credit for. So maybe you put yourself in a cool place. Maybe you made that call that you were really scared to make. But then all of us can think of a time when out of the blue or unexpectedly something incredible happens that shifts what's going on in our lives. And it could be a mm -hmm. relationship. It could be a person that came across your path or an email that you got out of nowhere. And Really, the encouragement with that is, again, like an example of one way to find magic is the stoic um, practice of memento mori. So that is mm. the idea. Yes. It means, you know, we too, we all will die. And it's this idea that we can get so easily just into a place where we're taking for granted what we have. And that was what Nathan did when he smelled those coffee beans and when he... Um, you know, saw the sunlight, it just brings you back to this moment mm. where you kind of think sometimes like, what if this were my last day? 
you know, and that it's kind of it, people could say, oh, that's so somber or depressing. But really, it can catapult you into having a very magical and revelatory experience. Sometimes in those moments where we reflect on what really matters to us, we find oh my gosh, my real value was to do this. And you all of a sudden have a breakthrough. Like, I know what I need to do. I need to quit that job and go work for this person because our values are aligned or whatever it is. So magic isn't, you know, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo as much as believing that something great is still waiting for you and and is coming towards you. And you're going to have to work for it. You're going to have to do stuff. You're going to have to prime for it. You're going to, it's going to require reframing it. But you are entitled as a human being to to find and link up with the things that will help you be the best person you can be. I really do believe that magic exists in that way when we think of it as those leaps of insight and revelation. Is there a hack to get there quicker? Like, are there are there things we should be doing that gets us there faster? You know, I think there's some cool stuff written about this. Um, Christian Bush wrote a book about the serendipity mindset and there are other people who talk, uh, Tina Seelig, again, she writes a book about, you know, mm-hmm. luck is really not as much luck as we think. When we go back and see people who are getting lucky, they're the ones who are showing up and helping, you know, put away the chairs or talking to someone. So we do need to put ourselves in there, but I don't think there's a shortcut. I think it's a shift in, in mindset to show up and be you. Don't try to be someone else, but you know, put yourself in places where you feel inspired. And so we actually talk about um, this idea of what um, technologies are you living by? And, you know, we talk about coffee. So Nathan had this idea that tech could be like high and low tech could also be Mm -hmm. brought down, not as like hardcore, like hard to understand and low tech being like, you know, um, a bike. Like, it's obvious how it's working. And and high tech would be something very crazy, like for me, like, you know, how the Internet works or whatever. So Mm -hmm. low techs would be coffee because it's like a direct input output relationship. Like I live by coffee as a tech because tech is really just anything used to have some kind of result. You know, if you think about it, like a tech is anything, Mm. um, a process put to or something put to a means to an end. You know, we use tech, coffee, Instagram is a tech. But it's kind of low tech because we know, like, if I go on there, I'm either going to feel like, oh, I suck or like, oh, cool, I have all these followers. So these are all techs. <laughs> but high techs, high techs are the thing where the input output is a little bit less for sure. Like it's it could be like so like let's say going to a museum. You could go to into a museum and see a lot of paintings and go out and think that was kind of boring. I didn't really get it and I don't really like it. Mm-hmm. Or some days you go in and you could go in there and see something or see an exhibit. This could be going to a beautiful film, reading a novel, hearing a piece mm-hmm. of music. And all of a sudden it just it strikes a chord with you. There's some resonance. There's something that feels like mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're kind of standing outside of time. Those are kind mm-hmm. of what we would, we're thinking is like those are high tech moments where it's like it's too complicated. Mm-hmm. There's no way you could figure it out. And so the shortcut would be add more high text to your life, read more good books, mm-hmm. talk to people who are different than you, figure out how to be more alive and being inspired and engaged instead of just going through this like scroll, swipe, like, dislike, follow, mm. buy, you know, like even buying stuff. It's such a low tech because it's like, ooh, you know, buying stuff we don't need. It can feel so good, but it's yeah. just then it just kind of is like in the back of our closet and we're just kind of it doesn't feed us. So high techs feed us. <laughs> yeah real it's like real food health food but yeah i don't think there's any shortcuts i think it's a daily practice and actually i one last thought i'd love to leave with you is this idea of transilience which is a beautiful idea that we talk about in the book um Mm -hmm. so everyone's talking about resilience and we love resilience we love um nassim taleb's work this idea that that stressors and things that are hard make us stronger Mm -hmm. you know people that are resilient and have grit, you know, they can take a punch and stay standing. And it's excellent. Mm -hmm. We all need to be more robust. But Mm -hmm. this idea of transilience is kind of beyond resilience because it's this moment and it, and it refers to a leap from one state to another. So it's a word. We did not make this up, meaning like the moment when metal is molten because of the heat, you know, it's uh, anything like a physical, 
physics mm. quality when we shift literally like it's like electrons jumping to a whole new realm and so we feel like possibility is a transient experience when we are able to harness like oh uncertainty all the fear all of the stress and link up with this sense of oh my gosh i can do this when it's reframed and it's that moment of switching from uncertainty to possibility and so transilience is really available to all of us. We just have to show up believing we can do it. Mm-hmm. And the tools do help because we get we've had some difficult things that happened to us while writing this book. Even, you know, we were all in the pandemic, but we had some really hard things. One of our kids was having a really difficult episode of, of depression brought on by the pandemic. He had just started art school when it started. And things just went really crazy fast. And then we didn't have the right care here. And there was a medication that was bad and it triggered other things. And we were using these tools to just continually reframe and to figure out, like, what's our role? What can we do? And it was really helpful to be so engaged with this work because we were able to stay in the game in a way that was way more calm than I think we would have been able to. So I know they work. I know these tools work. And you know what's cool is that, like you said at the beginning, so many people need to join this conversation because uncertainty is here to stay. Like, I feel like every day a new news headline thing is just kind of sending shockwaves so through our true. bodies. And it's it's kind of horrible and terrifying. And so it's here to stay. It's a muscle we can develop. Let's do it together. We need everybody thinking about how to do this. And the conversation's not over. It. Yeah. No, thank you. There will thank be more tools. This. In other words, other people will have cool tools. We don't think this is the end is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> That's true. That's true. How do people get a hold of you if they have questions? Is there social media or website? You know, well, so Nathan's on LinkedIn. Um, so Nathan, for neither of us are really into social media that much, but we have a website and you can look at either um, the upside of uncertainty.com or um, uncertainty possibility, no dashes or dots. Dot com. And that takes you to that UpSchool website where we have actually a lot of the tools are described in quite detail there. So it's a good way. And you can already Ooh. pre-order the book. It comes out on July 19th. So go to that website if you have more questions. But yeah. I love it. Thank you so much, Suzanne. I appreciate it. I love talking to you. Thank you. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it.